Folks, welcome to today's Buckmasters Outdoors podcast. I got my old hunting buddy Jeff Foxworthy with me this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I'm sure glad you 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 uh, accepted the invitation because I am at the bottom of the barrel because Greta said you ain't got anybody left. I said I'll call Foxworthy. Yeah, there we go. Why? And I'm only being nice because I want my grandson to marry your granddaughter. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, we've got we've had so much fun over the years, our friendship, and I know the audience would kind of like to hear a little bit about everything. So I've got a bunch of questions here, and we're gonna have some fun. So, all right, let's back up. It's a way back. You told me you used to work at IBM. So. Going from IBM, who encouraged you to try this stand-up stuff? Well, it, it sounds much more sophisticated than it was. I was working at a grocery store, and my dad had worked at IBM, and I think one of his buddies thought that I was never going to mount anything, so he got me a job. I was fixing machines. It, I carried a tool bag, and I fixed machines for IBM, and a bunch of guys that I worked with, I was always the funny guy at work. I was the guy that would be in the break room doing impersonations of the boss, and then you'd turn around and the boss would be in the doorway. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't on a rocket ship to the top. Uh, and But I worked with a bunch of guys that went to a, a local comedy club in Atlanta called The Punchline. And they kept coming back going, Foxworthy, you're funnier than people up there think. You need to do this. And they signed me up. It, was, it wasn't like an amateur night. It was a contest called the Great Southeastern Laugh-Off, and it was for working comedians. So they signed me up. And I'm like, oh, hell. So I went and I wrote like five minutes about my family and went down there. Well, the first night on stage, I won the contest. Really? And it sounds hopeful. I was so nervous, I, I couldn't even look at people, but I knew, it sounds okay, I knew a minute and a half into it, I'm like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. So I, I, I spent about three or four months going up on amateur night, and I finally decided I'm going to do this. So I quit my job at IBM, and my mother's first question was, are you on the dope? I don't know what the dope was, but are you on the dope? And I said, no. I said, Mom, I think I can do this. And, of course, five years later, I was on Johnny Carson, and the same mother said to me, you know, you wasted all these years at IBM. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. That's that's because that's what I was – my next question was – was there a stand-up club circuit that you had to do before you really got it to the big time? Oh, yeah. There was a kind of a circuit, and there were three levels. There were the opening act, the middle act, and the headliner. And, and the opening act, you didn't make but 100 or $200 a week. So I went from, I think when I, when I left IBM, now this is like 1984, I was making... $32,000 a year. My first year in comedy, Jackie, I found not long ago, I found the, the little calendar book where I'd written down all my dates. The first year, 1985, I did 406 shows, and for the year, I made $8,300. Uh, so wow. it wasn't a money move, but, but I was, and because my whole goal back then, and, and the younger people listening want to understand, the older ones will. I wanted to be on Johnny Carson, and I knew that everybody said it took you 
10 years to be good enough to be on Johnny Carson. Right. So I became a banshee. I did that little circuit I would do. Montgomery had a punchline. There was a Columbia, South Carolina had one. I would play clubs in Knoxville and kind of all over the Southeast originally. And then I kind of spread out all over the country. But I had eight years in a row, I did at least 500 shows for eight years in a row because I really wanted to be on Carson before right. he left. And uh, and so I told myself, if everybody says it takes 10 years, I'm going to do it in five. Right. And it actually took me five years and two months, but I did get to be on Johnny before he retired. That's amazing. Well, what was the deciding factor to go with the redneck category? Because that's that's really been your bread and butter you know, uh, when you got started. What was the deciding factor when you were trying to come up with the material? How did you get to the Redneck deal? Because that's what everybody was calling me. Because, I mean, I grew up, I was from a rural background. I was probably the only comic out there driving a pickup truck and wearing blue jeans and talking about hunting and fishing. And so everywhere I would go, you know, if I was working in New York, it was good nature, but they were they were going Foxworthy. You you're nothing but a redneck from Georgia, and and but the more I was going around the country, I, I discovered I'm like hell. This isn't a southern thing. This is this is a thirty minutes outside of any city thing. You get outside. Of, I mean, I don't care if you're in Pennsylvania or Ohio or wherever. You get thirty minutes outside of any city and. You got rednecks. And so one night I was working at a little club right outside Detroit in a town called Livonia, Michigan. And they were kidding me. We were sitting around after the show and they were kidding me at the club. Same thing. Fox really, you're nothing but a redneck from Georgia. And the club we were playing in was attached to a bowling alley that had ballet parking. And I said, Hell, if y'all don't think you got rednecks in Michigan, come look out the window. People are valet parking at the bowling alley. And I went back to the hotel that night, and I thought, hell, I know what I am, but apparently a lot of people don't. And, I, you know, Jack, I wasn't, ever, I wasn't thinking about it being a book or a hook or mm-hmm. a calendar. I just was looking for something funny to talk about. Mm-hmm. and. And so I came up with 10 ways of how to tell if you're a redneck. I went back the next night. I tried it on stage. And not only were people laughing, they were pointing at each other. And I thought, well, hell, if if I can write 10 of them, can I write 50 of them? If I can write 50, can I write them 100? Uh And I got to where I had about 300 of them. And I put it together as a book. And I got turned down by the first 14 publishers that I took it to. And the 15th one called me in for a meeting. He said, this is pretty funny. He said, how does $1,500 sound? And I didn't answer him because I thought he was asking me for $1,500 and I didn't have $1,500. And he's like, no, 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 we'll give you $1,500. I'm like, well, hell yeah, let's do it. And I said to him, I said, how many books do you think we'll sell? And he said, you know what? I bet we sell 5,000 of them. And I think that first book sold four and a half million copies. Wow. So every time I saw him, I would say, I'm glad you don't know anything more about the book business than I do. Uh, You know, so 
but they were they were one liners. They were easy to remember. Mm-hmm. They were easy to retell. You know, you all you had to do was remember a, a sentence, and you could get a laugh around the water cooler. And right. and I found real quick that it wasn't the ones I made up that got the best response. It was the true ones. Right. Uh, and so I think the first book of those came out in '88. I did the first page a day calendar in '90. And in 2022, those page-a-day calendars, it's still in the top five selling page-a-day calendars. That's amazing. Well, you know, when you sit down, how long does it take you to gather up new material to either go on tour or whatever you're going to do? I mean, is this a month? Is it two months? Is it a week? I mean, what do you look at when you sit down and start trying to come up with stuff? Or is that the process we do? Yeah, well, initially, you know, I would sit there and go, what's funny? What's funny? I'd look at billboards and watch commercials. Like, what can I talk about? What's funny? But I was very lucky because early on, I figured out what worked for me. And that was, I just decided, hey, if I think something or my wife says something or my family does something, I'm going to trust other people are thinking, saying, or doing the same thing. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to talk about my life. Mm-hmm. And Leno, who was a huge help to me, he in that first year, I remember one night we went to a Waffle House, and he, Jay said, and there were several comics there, and he said, your goal should be to write one new minute a week. And I thought, well, hell, that's crazy. I can write 20 new minutes a week. Mm-hmm. But Jay was Jay was right. And, and, and what what he meant by that is if every week, if you can come up with 60 more seconds of something people are going to laugh at every time you say it over the course of a year, you're going to write another 52 minutes of material. Mm-hmm. Now th- there were tons of comics that would come up with 15, 30, 45 minutes of material and they would just, they'd never do anything else. They mm-hmm. had, they had their act together, but for somebody like me, because you know, I'm, I probably make most of my big money selling records and DVDs. And so every time I did an album or did a special or, or did a DVD, I was burning up a year's worth of hard writing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was constantly writing. And people like Leno and Seinfeld would go, you know, why are you doing those records? You just have to keep writing all the time. Mm-hmm. But that was the way. I wasn't one of those guys that lived in New York or L.A. I wasn't trying to get a TV show or a movie. I just wanted to be a comic, and so uh, that's the way I did. Well, you know, because that was—I was trying to figure it out when I was thinking about. It. I said, "Do you go do a tour with all that material? Then after that tour, you got to spend four to six months to come up with complete new material to do the next tour." But what you just told me was what Leno said: you were writing the whole time, even though you were on tour. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, I was always writing. In fact, like when we first started doing the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, I think on that first uh, Blue Collar movie, of course, I was the headliner, so I I did like 45 or 50 minutes. But like Ron White and Larry the Cable Guy, they only did like 15 minutes. So they they were taking the best 15 minutes they had ever written. Right. And we're going out there and killing. And, and, and I would tell them every night, I would go, you better be writing like crazy because 
when this thing takes off, people aren't going to pay money to hear something they've already heard. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the difference. I would always tell my music friends, I'd say, if you write four hits, you can play to your ninth because people, they'll tolerate the new music. They may even like it, but what they're paying to see is those songs that they know. Mm -hmm. Well, comedy's the opposite. They want to hear the new material. They don't want to hear jokes they've already heard. And so now the advantage the comics have, I remember, hell, 30 years ago, I was doing a corporate show one night with Brooks and Dunn, and we were standing around backstage, and and Ronnie Duff said to me, hey, the Fox, what do you got to have to do a show? <laughs> I said, well, Ronnie, I got to have a microphone. I said, I like to have a stool and a bottle of water, but I don't have to have it. <laughs> and he thought about it for about five seconds, and he went, well, hell, you get to keep the money? Because <laughs> they had four semi-trucks and pyrotechnics and, yeah. you know, catering and and so that was the differences for a comic. You, you're constantly having to write, but you don't have to share it with anybody. Yeah, no overhead. Well, talk to me yeah. about this. Who do you practice your delivery? And your tone of voice on stage is completely different than your tone of voice, you know, that you and I talk about. Do you, do you practice in front of Greg, your lovely wife, the mirror, kids, friends, or your dog? <laughs> how, do, how do you do that? How do you practice? And who do you practice you know, in front of? It, it's funny, like, because I remember very early on, I was sitting at the improv one night, and, and I was trying to figure out, like, what my style was. And Seinfeld said, he said, I don't think, he said, I think you just do it every night. And after two, 10 years, you realize, oh, my God, I have a style. And so for me, it was always about the writing, like I would, as I would write, I would test stuff on, and you know, I'd throw it into conversation and go, hey, is this funny? Is this funny? And my, my poor wife has spent 37 years of me coming out of the shower going, hey, is this funny? And uh, and I hate it when she says yes before I've said anything. <laughs> that was you but, coming out of the shower. That was funny yeah, to her, right? But, uh, but once, with, I never practiced the delivery. I, I would work on the writing and work on the writing and I would go on stage. And then it was years later, like I was listening to myself and I was, I, I was talking about, I said, I said, but my kid, you know, my kids, every toy I ever bought them had a tag in there. So somebody had inspected it to make sure there was no way a child could possibly hurt themselves playing with it. And I went, holy hell, why do I do that? But it became, I don't even think about it, but as I'm delivering it, I guess my voice changes. Oh, yeah. But it's just me kind of doing it. Okay. Well, I just, I figured, I said, I, I figured you were practicing and you, you were doing different tones of voice and went, oh, that's it. Go with that one. Yeah, no, not, well, and I think a lot of it probably started with the redneck jokes because as yeah. I would do this, it, and a buddy of mine told me about, after I've been doing them for about 10 years, he said, you do realize you're doing the punchline before the setup. Yeah. And I said, what? And he goes, no. He goes, to do it right, you should say, you might be a redneck if you have a complete set of those and they all say, cool whip on the side. But I would do it 
If you have a complete set of salad bowls and they all say cool whip on the side, you might be a redneck. So they all ended with you might be a redneck. So I was really, and you know, I wasn't even aware of it. I was flip-flopping the joke. Yeah. You know? But those intonations, because it was just a sentence, probably developed a lot there. Yeah. Well, it's funny to listen to them because... You know, people, it's almost like a delayed laugh after you say it, and they think about it for about four or five seconds, they, they get it. You know what I'm saying? And they're, and they're punched. Yeah. And they're, you, know, you probably got more people elbowing people in your concert than anybody. <laughs> Wouldn't you say that? Did you know, Jackie, and that's, it's like, and like you said, probably most people would say, oh, that's the guy that does redneck jokes. But the majority of my material has been about relationships and kids and yeah. stuff. But And it's my favorite thing when I'm on stage is to look out and you can be talking about women packing or, you know, going on vacation with my family. And, and, and I, what I see is people laughing and then they start elbowing the person next to them or pointing at somebody oh, yeah. down the road. Yeah. And to me, what that says is you've taken something that this person has done or said a million times and they never thought about it being funny and you kind of showed it to them and made them laugh at themselves. Yeah, well, you've done a wonderful job with it. Well, let's talk about this because your big break, who got you your big break on Carson, then Leno, Letterman, because that really took you to the next level, correct? Oh, my God. Well, yeah, see, and, and, and again, you know, now you've got... So many, uh, because of social media, whether it's TikToks or YouTube videos or podcasts or whatever, there's so many ways to do it. But back then, and you and I remember, you had three TV stations. And yeah. if you were on Johnny Carson and Johnny liked you, that was a career maker. And so, you know, I've been out there doing 500 shows a year, and, and Leno saw me one night, and he said, you need to be on The Tonight Show because he was doing the guest hosting thing then. Oh, okay. And he, he went back and, and told Johnny about me and got me on The Tonight Show. And the, and the crazy thing was, so you go out there and you do your six minutes. And it was kind of an unspoken thing. If Johnny didn't like you, he would just clap. If he liked you, he would give you that big okay sign, you know, the thumb and the mm -hmm. index finger together. And if he loved you, he would call you over to the couch. So you go do your six minutes and you get to the end of it. You're scared to look because it's kind of like Caesar. It's Caesar with the thumb up or the thumb down deciding, do you live or die? Really? And Johnny was waving me over to the couch. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, what are we going to talk about? But he was so good at making everybody look good. Mm -hmm. So I get called to the couch and literally... The next week, Showtime offered me a special, and I started, and Caesar's Palace offered me to come headline, all because Johnny Carson loved me and called me over to the couch. So it was literally a career match. Well, that's what I'm saying. So basically, your appearances and your tours basically started after your appearance yeah. on Johnny Carson. That, yeah. That, that, and then, you know, and then it kind of steamrolled because... right. Then I did a special, and then, yeah. you know, after that, then a network's like, hey, do you want to do a sitcom? And I was so 
Yeah, kind of steamrolled after that. Well, how did you meet up with Bill Engvall and Ron White and Larry the Cable Guy? How did that kind of friendship start and y'all build that uh, relationship? Well, it, it started back in those days of doing those 500 shows and playing that circuit. And I saw Ron White the first night he ever got on stage at an amateur night because most clubs, and you were doing like Tuesday through Saturday or Tuesday through Sunday. Mm -hmm. But most of them, Tuesday night was amateur night before the regular show. And I would always sit in there and just watch everybody. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I saw Ron go up and I remember going over and finding him. And I'm like, dude, you are funny. You need to be doing this. And so Larry, the cable guy and I became friends. Uh, we worked together down at, there was a little club called the Comedy Corner in West Palm Beach. And I would schedule, I wanted to be down there in, the, in spring so I could watch the Braves during spring training. And he was the house MC, and he was a big Braves fan. Mm -hmm. So every day we'd get up and go watch the Braves spring training games, and we became buddies. And then I met Bill doing the Funny Bone Circuit in the Midwest. And so literally in the first couple of years of doing comedy, we all became friends. And so the blue-collar comedy thing started there was do you remember the kings of comedy tour it was like steve harvey and cedric the entertainer and all that oh yeah and and one of their first dates was in atlanta and i was reading a thing in the newspaper and talking about their show and it said it was four comics and it said this is a show for the urban hip audience and i thought well I've been to all 50 states, and there's a heck of a lot of people that aren't urban or hip and don't want to be. And so I called Evo, and I said, hey, what if we do a show for all these people that aren't urban or hip? And he laughed, and he said, what would you call it? And I said, we'll call it the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. And so we got the enlisted Ron and Larry, who nobody knew. Mm -hmm. and uh, And it was funny because the promoters – wanted us to do like some big production number at the end, like a silly song or something. Mm. And, but I was a huge fan of the Carol Burnett show. And my favorite part of that show was when they made each other laugh. Right. So right. I said, I said, Hey, instead of doing something big, can we do something small? Can we bring stools out and just tell stories and try to make each other laugh? Well, there was no way to rehearse that. Mm -hmm. So the first night we ever did it, we, we were in Omaha, Nebraska. We had 9,000 people. And I get to the end of my part, and I bring the other guys back out, and they bring a stool. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is either going to be really good or it's going to be horrible. You, you, you didn't know. You yeah. didn't practice it. And, and we did it and got to the end, and 9,000 people stood up, and we looked at each other and went, Oh my God. What, what have we stumbled upon? Wow. And we were, we had all set aside three months to do that tour. And we did that first tour for three years. It, it just, you know, none of us saw it coming. Wow. Now, wasn't there a blue collar TV show? Did y'all do that too? Yeah. Well, we did the first tour and then we did two years, which was kind of like a Saturday Night Live. It was just sketchy. Right. Um, and we did two years of that because after doing the sitcom, that was really the only thing I had done that I didn't enjoy. Right. Because it just, it took over your life. I mean, it just, 
And I thought, well, I don't care about doing TV. Well, I found I love doing sketch shows and writing with them. Mm-hmm. And we did, it was the top rated show on the WB. And then they got a new president who thought we weren't hip and sophisticated enough for their network. But, and that was fine because I, most people get into stand up with the idea that it will, it's like a springboard for TV and movies. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it was for me. I got to do TV and movies because of it. But to me, stand-up was the top of the mountain. There was nothing better than that. And Leno was like that. And mm-hmm. Seinfeld's like that. You know, back in the day, Cosby was like that. And so, it, that, that, that to me, I always, I enjoyed writing books and I enjoyed doing TV shows. Right. But if you put a gun in my head and said, you can't do but one thing, I would have never hesitated. I'd say, okay, I'll do stand-up. That's what I like the best. Well, that's one thing I was going to ask you because what's the difference of being funny on TV compared to stand-up? And you basically answered that because, I mean, you got laugh tracks that are put in whether you're funny or not. How do you know that? Well, you don't because you haven't tried it in front of, a, of an audience. And that was Kind of my thing when you were doing a sitcom, it was all week of write, rewrite, rehearse, rewrite, rehearse. Mm -hmm. And then you'd go do it. Well, that was Friday night and Monday morning. You're on to the next one. You don't know if it's funny or not. And with stand up, I guess that's what I liked about it was because of that live element with that audience. Yeah. You knew 30 seconds after it was out of your mouth. Is it funny or is it not funny? That's so, crazy. Well, how did the fifth grader deal? How'd that come about? Because that was that was fun to watch. I really, you know, I watched. And I said, going, "That's pretty cool." Who came up with that concept, and how'd you get involved in it? I wish I had. It was Mark Burnett who had done Survivor and all those shows, uh-huh. and he called me one day and he said, "Would you be interested in hosting a game show?" And I said, "No, thanks. You know, too cheesy. Don't want to do that." And I said, "What?" if you don't mind me asking, what's the premise? And he said, adults taking an elementary school test for a shot at a million bucks. And I just started laughing. I said, that's a great idea. And I said, and I can be funny because you know people aren't going to know this stuff. And Uh I was never mean-spirited, but I I could have fun when people didn't know the answer. And it ended up being... We did it for six years. I loved doing that show. I, I liked the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go out and film it. I would film eight shows a day because I didn't want to stay in L.A. I wanted to. Yeah. I wanted to get them over with, and and then I could still go do stand up. But I, no, that was one of my favorite things I ever did. <laughs> what was the craziest thing that ever happened on one of those shows that stands out to you? Yeah, well, he, it was funny because. I had a, a, a thing they called an IFB. It was a little thing that would be in my ear where they could talk to me from the control truck. And they would usually say things like, all right, Jeff, because they were timing it, you know, to make it fit between the commercials. Mm-hmm. So they would say things like, Jeff, ask the question, but go to commercial before you reveal the answer. Well, once we had done a hundred of them and they and I had that down, they would start messing with me. So I had this thing in my ear that only I could hear. And one of the people in the control booth would go, holy cow, look at the pit stains on this guy. He is a nervous wreck. <laughs> and I'm I'm talking to the guy, trying not to laugh, you know. And they would, they would just be messing with me. 
as the show was going on. Um, even like for years after that, I did the uh, American Bible Challenge. It's the same thing. Had the thing in my ear when they would tell me to go to commercial. Well, apparently, Jackie, I'm not sophisticated enough that I apparently mispronounced a ton of names from the Old Testament, <laughs> and I could hear them in the control booth laughing. I could hear them laughing, and they were just going, "Yep, that's that's not the way you, that you pronounce that." And I would, and I'm going, "Well, that's how my mama pronounces it, and if she pronounces it that way, that's what I'm going with." So, yeah. That's funny. All right, talk to me on concert day. You know, if you're getting ready to go do a concert, what's your daily routine? I mean, it's like an athlete. They do certain things to get ready for the game. What do you do to get ready for your uh, nightly concert? Well, I usually, you know, get up early and I'll, I'll fly. Back when my kids were little, I would rent a plane and fly so I could fly back and get home to take them to school and all. But mm-hmm. once they got grown and gone, I just go get on Delta and I'll usually try to get there Late morning, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock, go have lunch. Usually because I've gotten up at 4 or 5, I'll grab a quick nap, and then I'll pull out my stuff, that the new stuff that I want to talk about that night. And so I always kind of go into it where I have an idea where I want to start and where I want to finish and maybe what I want to try new within that. And then... Uh, I get to the theater two or three hours before the show, usually have a meet and greet. Well, before COVID, you know, where people from the radio station or the, the winners in their contest or friends you might have in that town come backstage and you get to visit with them a little bit. And then about 30 minutes before the show, I'll have a cup of coffee and kind of look over my notes again and then then go stand on the side of the stage and it's funny because most comics will ask the promoter, how much time do I have to do? Mm-hmm. My, I always say, how long can I do? Yeah. I don't want them to get in trouble with the unions or to go too long. But once I'm up there, I mean, to this day, I've been doing it 38 years. I still, when those lights go down and people start clapping, I still get excited. It's yeah. I still love doing it, which I guess if you've been doing the same thing for 37 years and you still love doing it, you're a blessed man, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Well, i tell you what, uh, we appreciate my wife, Debbie, and I came to see your new tour the other night, the good old days. And I was sitting there, because we laughed, and I'm sitting there watching them going, all right, do you have this thing completely memorized? Have you got teleprompters? you got something up there that's got maybe tips if you get off course or something. I mean, what do you do? Is it all completely memorized and you just got it down? I I mean, my, my little brain doesn't hold but about an hour and a half anymore. So, yeah, i got most of it where it's like you, you've done it and redone it and rewritten it and all, and, and so it kind of it soaks into to the fabric of your brain, but in order to write new stuff, I forget the old stuff. I mean, I'll have people come up to me and go, hey, will you tell the thing about when you saw your grandmother naked? And, and I said, how did, how did that go? How did that start? Because I can't, you know, I can't remember things I did 20 and 30 years ago. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I had a, a another comic 
tell me one time, he said, he said, you have to be intimate with your material. You just have to think about it and go look at it and go, how can I make it better? How can I make it funnier? And, and I think it's that time, you know, one night my wife took a picture of me. I was sitting at the kitchen table and I had note cards, note books, notes on my phone and my, and my computer where I'd put things in. And she said, if people knew how much went into this, and she took a picture of me, and she's mm-hmm. like, you need to save this for, for, because people think you're just walking up there and just, you know, it's off the cuff. And sometimes it is, but and I, I never took it lightly that people were spending their hard-earned money to come see me. And so I didn't want to be flippant about what I was doing. I wanted to be prepared. And, yeah. and I mean, I guess that's just the way, I mean, if I go hunting, I want to be prepared. I want to be, right. if I go fishing, I want to be prepared. And that's just kind of the way I always approached it. Well, I just didn't know, you know, if you had something on your stool right there that just had some topics, like, you know, that if you missed something, you went back to, you went to get water and then you could see a line or something going, all right, I know, I remember that. I can jump into that. But otherwise, if you're just doing it, memorizing, that's unbelievable. Because, I mean, you went a straight hour and a half, and we, I mean, we ain't stopped laughing yet, but I, I was just more thinking about you and your routine. I said, how's he going from one to another? I guess if you've done it for so long, then how do you do the new material and, and remember to put the new material in there? Well, because it's you spent, you know, at, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, one of the coolest things about stand-up is you never – you never know what people are going to laugh at. And mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is if you lay carpet for a living, after 30 years, you would know, hey, this is how you do the stairs. This is yeah. how you do the corner. You got it down. Right. But to to this day, because like, usually when I'm working on new stuff, I go to a, to a small club on a Monday or Tuesday night when there's only 30 or 40 people in there because I want to – I want an accurate reaction to it, not a Saturday night. And uh, and if you, if I had my stack of cards where I was trying new stuff, and you said to me, pick out the four four jokes that are going to work the best. After all this time, I would be dead wrong on half of them. Really? I mean, I would say to you, oh, they're going to they're going to snot when they hear this, uh-huh. and then you throw it out there, and it gets nothing. Really? Or you'll do you you think well this is stupid and you throw it out there and people are beating the table and you're like really huh. so I always just assume the audience is right the audience will tell you what's funny yeah. you just have to listen to them yeah. um, cool you know okay well what is I mean you've been doing this for thirty seven years what's the craziest thing that's ever happened on stage during a performance <laughs> oh. There are too many to name. One of the ones that I remember the most is when we were doing the Blue Collar Tour. And we're not, you know, we were so low-key. Like like most places backstage in your dressing room, they put, like, maybe some little sandwiches or some chips or, you know, Cokes, coffees or whatever. But we never had a writer, you know, demand anything. So one night we did a show. We were up in Boston, and they had a table I'm talking about a lunchroom table that must have been three feet deep in every kind of cheese. There was cheese balls, cheese squares, cheese <laughs> slices. 
And so we're laughing. I mean, we're back there gut laughing at how much cheese there was. And so, of course, the way we did Blue Collar, it was Larry, then Ron, then Bill, then me. Well, while I was on stage, those idiots went down the street to the radio shack and bought a gigantic remote-controlled dump truck. And while I'm on stage doing my ads, here comes this dump truck, and it's got cheese falling out. I mean, it's piles of cheese. And they put a little sign in it that said, thought you might like some cheese. And so I'm trying to do my act, and this dump truck is just doing circles around me on the stage. And I can hear the four of them laughing like hyenas at the edge of the stage with their little remote control over there. Oh, God. Those guys aren't right either. All right. Is there anything on your bucket list that you haven't done in comedy yet? That you want to do, that you hadn't done. Not, not in comedy. I, I would like. Nobody's ever offered me a serious part. I'd like to play a cowboy in some. I don't even care if I just ride into town, get shot off my horse. But I would <laughs> like to do one little serious part before I die. But not most of my bucket list was like I wanted to go up to the Yukon and bow hunt a moose. Yeah, I, I got to do that. Most of my things were related to hunting and fishing probably more than comedy yeah well let's that's a good transition let's talk about how you and i met and i remember we were at the buckmasters country jam that i had over at the georgia dome and i was there with mm-hmm. rick blau uh his blouser and limpke and all the uh all the baseball yeah, guys and some friends came up uh, of yours and said hey man one of your biggest fans on your show is jeff fox i said really and I, I guess it wasn't, but two months later, you, you came to Montgomery, and uh, I just yep. ran down there. I called WLW. I said, hey, I'd like to get in the meet and greet line and meet Jeff. And that's how you and I met. I never forgot that. Oh, my God. Well, see, for, for somebody like me, I couldn't believe that people were filming deer hunts. I was living in L.A., and, and I discovered you, and my wife, would she just go, you're just in heaven, because I didn't, because obviously I was on the road so much and doing too many, so many shows, I never got to hunt, you know, because I was going from city to city to city to city, but so I was living vicariously through you watching somebody from the South deer hunt, and I thought, my <laughs> God, this is awesome, so hell, I was probably more excited to meet you than I was Muhammad Ali, you know, I mean, that was... Well, I, and I remember that, you said, look, I can I help you? Can I do a show? Do this and that. All I want to do is shoot a 10 point deer. And I said, well, look, I got a big, I, I never forgot that. I was going, that's all you want. I said, all right. So I said, I got my Buckmasters Classic coming up. I'd love for you to be one of the celebrities there. And I'll send you to a place called Sedgefield, good friend of mine. And by gosh, you, you came down to the Classic and you went to Sedgefield. Oh my God. Yeah, I did. And did, did the classic and went back and did, I don't know how many of those hunts that you were doing, oh, yeah. you know, make a wish, got to yeah. the point where they wouldn't honor the That's rural right. kids that didn't care anything about meeting Michael Jordan. They wanted to shoot a deer. That's right. And, you know, you and I saw miracles happen then. Yeah, I had yeah. a, I mean, just kids that you wouldn't have bet a dollar. We're blowing through straws in a wheelchair right. to pull the trigger. And 
you know, my, I had a, I think I called you because I had a kid that lived across the street from me, a teenager named Andrew Toole. That's right. And, I remember Andrew. And, and Andrew had never shot a buck. And I said, could I bring him down there? And he shot a giant old eight-pointer. And yeah. to this day, that, that picture still sits in my office of me and Andrew Toole. Cause, <laughs> and he had, he had a bad cancer, and he didn't have but months to live. And... You and I arranged, we shot the deer. We had the taxidermist mounted that deer in like three weeks. Yep. And do you know he hung that thing in his kitchen because he wanted to see it all the time. And, yeah. And he lived with his mom and dad and his mother goes, I never thought I'd have a deer head hanging in the kitchen. Um, but <laughs> well, they did. I and that was a yeah moment you're well I, I remember because you that was part of our first life hunt because when i left the buckmasters classic after 15 years I, I, I we had really gotten buckmasters really involved working with disabled but when the make a wish foundation quit honoring kids hunts we picked it up yeah. and i wanted you to be part of the first one and oh andrew came and i remember we did the old we did the old game warden prank on you where where you, you yeah, shot the remote funny. control that deer that was really fun. See, let me tell everybody about that. So they come running back during the day and said one of the guys was driving around and saw a giant buck bedded down. And you told me, get your orange vest, get your rifle, go, 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 go. And I went up there and crawled to the stand and got up in there and had a cameraman. And we're sitting there looking. He goes, oh, there he is, back in the woods, back in the woods. And I got a steady rest and I shot that deer and that deer didn't run and I shot him again and he didn't <laughs> run and then I hear Woo! and here come the game wardens who ended up putting me in handcuffs and taking me back to the lodge much to the delight of all the disabled and hunters and wounded warriors and had me in handcuffs and I'm trying to explain no 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 Jackie Bushman sent me out here Jackie Bushman and yeah, you thought it was a lot funnier than I did at the time. But what was so funny was we were gathering around down there to do the hunt, and Andrew saw what was going on. And remember, he jumped back into bed and pulled the covers over his head. Yeah, he wasn't going. He didn't tell me either that I was about to go into the pokey. So yeah. <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun at that hunt, and I just saw the pictures of a young man named Rudy Wells. And remember, he was like on our second one. And he was like eight years old, had a real bad bout of leukemia. And I just got the letter and I sent that to you. He not only made it through with the cancer, but he graduated uh, high honors in medical school at Florida, going into oncology to do uh, cancer work for kids. Dude, when I got that from him, I just stood there at the kitchen counter with tears. Yeah. Just rolling down my face going, Oh my God, he not only this little kid beat cancer, but now he's going to be a cancer doctor for other kids. And I yes. still got the picture of you and him. That's what he wanted. He wanted a picture of, uh, of y'all. And that, that's what means so much to me with that program. Oh my God. So, yeah. You can't, how do you put a price tag on that? Yeah. Now, who got you hunting? Was it your dad? Yeah. My, my daddy, my dad liked to bird hunt. He liked to quail hunt and dove hunt. And we didn't have a dog, so I knew anytime Dad bought me new fryer bridges that I was going to be the dog. And that was 
back in the old country days of you'd go go down in the ditch bank, fence lines, and mm-hmm. my dad would send me down in the ditch to flush the birds, and he would shoot them. But, you know, probably like most little kids, I got a twenty two and started out squirrel hunting and stuff. And my dad actually bought back the farm he grew up on in Washington County, Georgia. Really? And, uh, uh, yeah, and... And I, I, Jackie, I could take you to the place that I saw my first deer track, and I was just enamored. So I hunted two years before I ever saw a deer because mm-hmm. there just weren't many. They had they had restocked them in the fifties, mm-hmm. and so it took me two years. And the first buck I ever shot was a little five pointer, and I drove him around town. <laughs> the back of the tailgate just so everybody could be amazed at that. And, uh, and you've never forgot that, huh, have you? Oh, my gosh, no. I mean, no. I wouldn't take take anything for that. But And, and I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I would get pallets from behind the grocery store, and I'd find a good tree that would hold a pallet. I never thought about food plots, wind direction, bedding areas. I wear my blue jeans and my sweatshirt and climb up there with my, you know, 308 with the over under scope on it. And I, I mean, it was just blind luck that I ever shot a deer, but I was addicted. I mean, and all these years later, still addicted. I just, I, I just do it with a phone now instead of a gun. Well, that's awesome. You know, I remember you when, you, you know, we were talking about hunting, how we got together. You know, we had our Buckmasters Classic, and, you know, you came there for a few years. And, you know, we had Fan Day, where we brought all the fans out. They got a chance to meet you yeah. and Earn Hart and Wade Boggs and all that. And I remember we were setting you up as a cousin of Robin Hood. And you were your, your name was Car. You dressed up in some pink tights or something, and your name was Car Hood. <laughs> I had like a Robin Hood hat on or something, and I and and, and so my whole mo because I wasn't gonna wrestle Wade, Mister Perfect, all them guys. I was just gonna be fast, and so I just ran away from them the whole time that I was in the ring. Yeah, uh, but th- those both of those guys were nuts. They they dunked me in the lake. They busted plates over my back. They they had a field day with me. Well, I, I just did a podcast with Boggs. He said, hey, tell Foxworthy I'm ready to go hunting with him whenever he's ready. <laughs> All I remember is the two of them holding me by the ankles, dunking my head in the lake. So, uh, well, that was like at what four o'clock in the morning. That was the first yeah, year, four wasn't it? Four o'clock in the morning, they came and got me out of bed and dunked me in the lake. So. Well, th- then the next year, you got the little chain lock and chain locked them because you knew they were going to be coming to get you. And when they got the key and opened and the chain hit it, you started laughing. I'm going ha ha ha. And then they stuck the fire extinguisher hose in and just drenched you. Oh my God! Stuck the fire extinguisher hose in there, and it was that powder kind. And I'm laughing because I'd locked them out of my room. And then after about two minutes, I couldn't breathe, and I had to go unlock the door. And they picked me up and go went and dumped me in the lake again. <laughs> and then, then it was either the next year I sent you to Sedgefield, and you got to tell me that that was funny. They were beating you up or something. You had to give them cash to stop or something, wasn't it? They were practicing. They were. Wade was getting Mr. Perfect to show him wrestling moves and how you could hit somebody over the back without it hurting so bad and all. And so they were wrestling all over the house, and I'd gone to bed because I wanted to get up and hunt in the morning. 
And they came in there with a scrabble box, and Wade picked me up out of the bed, and Mr. Perfect hit me over the head with it. Well, 100 scrabble tiles went everywhere in every direction. <laughs> and, you know, they're just gut laughing, just gut laughing at this. And I get back in the bed trying to sleep, and I keep rolling over on little wooden tiles from the Scrabble game where they busted me over the head. <laughs> but you had to pay them cash to go to bed, didn't you? I gave them $100 to leave me alone because I wanted to go hunting. And they did. They were men of their word. Oh, my gosh. They were crazy. We, you know, we lost Mr. Perfect a few years back. You know, he was a character. I didn't know how big the wrestlers were. You know, we had a lot of folks down there. But, boy, I just didn't know how big the wrestlers were. And the people really lined up for those guys. Oh, Oh yeah, man. That was the that was the longest line was for the wrestlers, but they were great guys. Oh I mean, God, Earth was a great guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember the Buckmasters Expo. You said, "Look, I'll I'll do a concert for you, and uh, just let me know when it is." I said, "Well, the Expo's in August." And I'll never forget this night. It's at our old train station. I used to take the train to go to Rome, Georgia, to stay with my grandfather. And you got on stage and you're doing your routine. And the train starts coming, and the conductor looks out the window and recognizes you, and uh, you tell him the rest. I, I never forgot that. And started, then started hitting the horn on the train because they got all excited. Well, then nobody could hear anything I was saying after that. But uh, no, that was that was a fun. I, do you remember the time I went down there to the expo and I'd never shot a boat? Yeah, and you. You took me behind the wall and said, all right, this is how you hook the release to it. This is how you put the arrow on it. And y'all were having your, your bow shooting competition. Yeah. And we went out there, and you said, I'm going to have a target pop up, and if you hit it, I'll give you one of everything in the room. Because you didn't think I was going to I mean, I ain't <laughs> never shot a bow. And I drilled it, and... And and it was a great deal because you you were treating your words. You gave me a four wheeler and you gave me the bow and the arrows and all that. But I remember me trying to tell you, well, you've got a Chevy truck over here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was trying to get a truck out of the deal. I remember that. I said, oh no, that's just a local sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a local sponsor. I remember that. <laughs> you got me on that. But, yeah, I brought you out with the little Young Bucks antlers, and uh, we brought you out to YMCA, if I remember right. That's right. And and, and that was actually what got me started bow hunting, is I'm like, well, crap, I wonder if I could do this, you know. Oh, yeah. and, and I took that bow, and you got me a couple of targets, and I set them up in my backyard, and and I'd go down there every afternoon, and I and I was practicing. In fact, I had a note one day from the guy that cut my grass, and he the note said, "If somebody has to move a bear, a deer, and a coyote target to cut your grass, you might be a redneck." <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I know you put on your resume. You know, you've done Carson. You've done everybody. But you did the Buckmasters Gear for Deer segment for two or three years on the TV show. That had to take you to new levels, didn't it? Oh, that was that was probably the top moment in show business for my life <laughs> uh, was, was doing that. And then 
I think Larry the Cable Guy did it after me, didn't he? Yeah, well, I, I'm gonna get to that one. I, I got you. I, I'm gonna set you up for that one pretty good. But I remember the other one was I brought you into the JB show, and oh God, you just roasted my butt. But we were down at I think it was Pat Gregory Studio, and the air conditioning they had on was making so much noise. We couldn't hear the audio, so we had to turn the air off and try to do the whole show. And you're ringing wet. I'm so wet. Dripping sweat. And you know, and that's why, you know, when you first asked me to do it, I didn't want to follow Jim. I'm like, well, no. I'm like, (laughs) I ain't following Jim Barney, you know. uh, That's what I want to know. Why didn't, you know, when when Jim passed away, because... You know, for folks that are listening, Jim Varney was Ernest, and the Ernest character who everybody knows Ernest. But when I when he passed away, and I still had Shotgun Red alive, why didn't you want to do that? Because I thought Jim was so perfect at it. I thought he did such a great job that it, in my mind, it was like, no man, this is his. It's like uh, last year I did a show at the Grand Ole Opry. It was me and Lena, and and so before the right before the show, so I just assumed. I mean, this is Jay Leno. Jay, I'll go first, and Jay can close. And and Jay came to my dressing room. He goes, he goes, you close the show, and I'm like, absolutely not. No, you're Jay Leno. I ain't closing the show. Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah, I don't want to follow you. You, I'm going first. You close and. And and I'm like, crap, that's like the one of the biggest honors of my life. Here's one of my comedy heroes, the guy that that just made such a difference in my career, went back and told Johnny Carson about me, mm-hmm. gave me all this advice when I was just a little snot-nosed kid. And here we are at the Grand Ole Opry, and he wants to go first and me to close. And so... I mean, I just kind of felt that way about Jim. I'm like, no, this is earnest. This is, hell, I ain't following him. <laughs> well, I, I do remember you said, well, all right, I ain't doing it. Call Ingmar. And so I called Bill, and I talked to him about it. He said, well, Foxworthy ain't doing it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> so then I talk, call you back, and you said, look, I got an up-and-coming guy. His name is Dan. He'll do it. Try him. So I called Dan, and he came in, and we did it. I think two or three years, and my guys were going, that's all right, it ain't great. Why don't we just go a different direction and put our mascots on? And then you called me back, and you said, hey, nice move, Bush. He's turned into Larry the Cable Guy. He only made $35 million this year, but you just fired him. (laughs) You got him right before he turned into Larry the Cable Guy. So, uh... God, and hey... I'll tell you this, my wife and I were just out at the SCI convention and I hadn't seen in years. So I went backstage just to say hi and just being him. And um, I walked up and they went, do you know who that is? Dan. And he, went, he looked at me, stared at me, he said, uh-uh, I don't know who that is. I said, and they went, that's Jackie Bushman. He went, that's you, Jackie Bushman? You're as old as Methuselah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if it makes you feel any better, he does the same thing to me. Every time we get together to do good God, Foxworthy, you sure are getting old. And he went out on stage, and the first thing he does, man, I'm glad to be here. There's two or three thousand, but I'm glad to be here. Hey, man, I just saw my buddy Jackie Bushman. He fired my ass back in 1999. (laughs) I sure sure showed him. He said, 
And then he goes on and says, you know, I don't know if y'all know this, but Jackie now is a transgender hunter. His name is a girl and a boy. I mean, he just roasted me. But... <laughs> well, you fired him. Good Lord. <laughs> but I always forgot about that. And, uh, but he could have been. You're probably the last person to fire Larry the Cable Guy. I know. And he was, he was very funny. And I, I enjoyed seeing him. He's going to do a podcast, too. But. You know, we've just met some folks. It's just been a, it's been an awesome deal. But let's talk a little bit about you do a lot of charity work and stuff. And the Duke Children's Hospital was something you got involved with. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, my brother played football at Duke. And so because of that connection, Perry Como had started it. And a lot of people don't know Duke Children's Hospital is kind of like St. Jude's. They don't turn any kid away based right. on ability to pay. And so they have to raise about... 50 or $60 million a year to take care of all these kids. And Perry Como did it for like 18 years, and then he kind of got too old to do it. And and they asked me, and I went up there and met the kids, and I'm like, Lord, I'll do it. Well, my wife Greg and I, we, we ended up doing it for almost 20 years. And it was just kind of like the thing of getting the letter from our little buddy from the, from the hunt. I, I remember... About year 11 or 12, I was up there one time. And that, the country stars were great. They'd come do shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you came up there. We'd have celebrities come play golf, and people would watch them. But I was I was out there on the course, and this lady had like a 10, 11-year-old girl running around playing with somebody else. And she said, can I get a picture with you and my daughter? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Her daughter come over, and we're taking the picture. And the mom said, I have another picture of you with her, but she only weighed a pound and a half then. Wow. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen a pound and a half baby, but for like, and I would meet these kids up there and they're about the size of a squirrel. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, I just teared up and going, man, this ain't for naught. This is life changing what we're doing up here. So uh, that was, that was a good couple of decades spent doing that. Is that how long you did it? I was curious because I think that was yeah, one of the first ones. 20 years. Wow. Yeah. I think that yeah. was one of the first ones that Debbie, you invited Debbie and I up and, uh, yeah. and, and her and Greg got to meet each other and had a great time. And by the way, I, you know, it's no big deal. I still never got my trophy for uh, my finish. Oh, for crying you know, out loud. Never got my trophy. I'm- I'm going to, I never got my Chevy truck for hitting the deer with the arrow. So we're going, that was the one. All right. That's the one. All the money you got, you couldn't make me a trophy and send it to me. By God. <laughs> for me to win, hey, I was a tennis player. I wasn't a golfer and I won a freaking golf tournament. And I never got a trophy. So it's all right. It's cool. You know what? I'm going to go to the Goodwill store. I'm going to find you a trophy and I'm going to send it to you. All right, let's let's talk about God has come into your life, and you've got have just done a wonderful job with your Christian faith. When did that happen? And did anybody influence you with your with your uh, with your religion and God? Well, you know, I mean, I got saved when I was seven years old, but it, right. it, my mom is two. My mom's eighty-five years old has a prayer group of ladies. They've met together, I bet you, 35 years on Thursday evenings. And once you get on their list, you ain't getting off. Uh-huh. So uh, my, if there's a... 
I'll probably in heaven, I'll be at the card table with a wobbly leg in the corner, but my mother's going to be at the big table. She was, her praying protection over me is probably why I'm still alive today. But yeah. no, I mean, faith has always been a part of my life. And, and then I kind of found later on, it was like, because I had this ability to do comedy, that people would come hear me speak to be funny, and then I could roll it over and talk about faith. And so, because I didn't really have an interest in preaching to the choir, I wanted to talk to people that, you know, wouldn't necessarily go to church. And mm-hmm. um, so that's, you know, that's always kind of a big thing. And then, heck, about, well, COVID could put a stop to it. But for 12 years before that, I would I'd get up every Tuesday morning at 5 o'clock and go down to the... Atlanta Mission and, and do uh, Bible studies with homeless guys. Started out with me and 12 guys. And by the time we reached COVID, we had 30-something group leaders and about 320 homeless guys every Tuesday morning. So that was, people want to go, well, why don't I know this? And I'm like, well, I ain't doing it for publicity. I'm just doing it because it needs doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you didn't tell a lot of people. I knew that. That was one of my questions is that you were doing that, I think, like on Tuesdays and stuff, and you were touching a lot of people. So, And I remember my Dr. Stegall, my, my minister at my church, kept saying, look, we want to do a wild game supper. I want you to get your buddy Jeff Foxworthy up here. And I, I mean, it took two years to get it on the calendar. And then he said, man, it's just too big. We only can seat 1,300 folks. We've got two or 3,000 folks that want to come to this thing. How can we do it bigger? I said, well, y'all figured that out. I, I got Jeff coming. And uh, he got all the churches together. And if and you remember this night, it was called A Night of Comedy and Christian Discovery. And we did it at Garrett Coliseum. Do you remember that? Dude, I ain't never seen so many people in my whole life. It was crazy. <laughs> it was like the field of dreams. Build it and they will come. And we couldn't start it because people were just still coming in. And this is a known fact. I don't know if I told you this. That building has only sold out, and this was free. This was to everybody, twice. Yeah. One of them was Elvis, and the second one was Jeff Foxworthy. Oh, my word. Do you- I don't think I'm not going to use that. <laughs> I, think, I don't know if my wife is impressed enough with me. to. I'm going to let her know that. No, me and Elvis are the you, only two people. You and that. Elvis. Now, that was the other thing. And you've been doing this for a while. How did you, how were you able to mix your comedy and your testimony together? How, how difficult was that? Because your presentation was spot on because you had folks from all different walks of life there. And that was cool. How'd you mix that? Well, you know, I mean, I, it, it, I always thought if sometimes Christians make the mistake, we get so uptight that if I was on the outside, Looking in, I would go, oh, I don't know if I want to be a part of that or not. But, but I believe God, God says he created us in his image. And I know as a daddy, and you know this, that when your kids are laughing, that, that nothing fills your heart more than that. And so I thought, well, if you get people to laugh and, and then just kind of, and I think the way I rolled it over was talking about, Hey, there's rednecks in the Bible too, and mm. you know, and it kind of went through that, and just not trying to beat anybody over the head. Because I, I really think the story of you know, a lot of people look at the Bible as a book of rules, and I look at it as a love story. And, right. 
it's the story of creation and then man's fall from grace and then Jesus and then the restoration of us with God. And so it's a love story. And so when you present it that way, then it makes sense to kind of go from laughter into that. And I remember a guy that night coming backstage and he was probably in his 70s. And he said, I've never heard it told like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and and he said, I always figured God had his hand back ready to slap me. And I'm like, no, look what he did for you. He loves you. Yeah. Well, you, you just, and, you weaved it perfect. And I just thought, and, and to be filling that place up, you and Elvis filled it up. That's just, that's just a blessing, my friend. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but that night, so, because my daddy had never, I mean, he, like I told you, you know, when we quail hunted, it was, yeah. I mean, kicking dick. And, and so from Sedgefield, I knew how many quail they had. And I called you and I said, could I do something for my daddy? <laughs> He's never been on a great quail hunt. Yeah. And you said, bring him down here. And man, he had the time of his life. And then, you know, we went down there and did that. And I think it wasn't, it was the next year he got killed in a, in a car wreck. I remember. And, and so, and, and so I did that thing and you had a guy paint a picture of me and my dad from that day. Mm-hmm. And that picture still sits in my office. I mean, it's, well, I couldn't pay you cash because I was sitting there going, well, you know, paying him cash ain't going to probably do nothing for him. But I got that picture of you and your dad and the horses and everything. And that guy does such a great portrait. And I remember oh I, my God. I gave it to yeah, you but- after the performance and, uh, I, I just and thought, what did I do? You cried like a baby. <laughs> yeah, I did. You I did. started crying. So that's the last fun thing we got to do together. I remember that. I remember your dad, because you know customary quail hunting. You know, you, you know, you shoot, and then you let somebody else shoot. and that. Your dad shot every time, remember? No, he wasn't going to let somebody else shoot it. He ain't never been into birds like that in his life. And just like, Daddy, you want somebody else to turn? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm like, all right, well. That was fun. No. That he was talked fun. about that. He talked about that the entire ride back. I ain't never seen so many birds in my whole life. Well, that was the cream of the crop. All right, well, let's talk about. We're coming to the end here. Your grandfather now. What? What's that like? Hey, all right, I'm gonna tell you. This is the honest truth. You know, it's like before you had kids, and people would try to tell you what it's like, and you thought you knew. And my manager and best friend growing up, Larry Burns, he had had a grandchild a couple of years before me. And he's, we call him crusty because he's such a cynical old dude. And this grandkid, I told him one day, I said, if anybody else went on about their grandkid and showed as many pictures as you do, you would make fun of them. And he said, you're right, but they don't have my grandkid. Uh, <laughs> and, and Jack, the honest truth, I had no idea I had that much untapped love inside of me. Yeah. We had... My side of the family, we had 13 girls in a row. And then this past March, my daughter had the first little boy in 58 years. Wow. And when I hold, I, I tell, I tell my wife and my children, I go, I love him more than y'all. I love y'all a lot, but I don't love anybody more than I love this little baby right here. <laughs> uh, well, that's, oh, I love that. No. And your little granddaughter is, maybe the cutest baby I've ever seen in my life. And so, and he's really cute too. I'm, the two of them need to get together. Well, we can make sure that happens. I'll tell Ann Tyler. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I you tell. I'll send you some current pics. He's a handsome young dude. All right. And he likes older women. So, <laughs> uh, we can the two of them up. What's your grandfather name? Jex. J E X. Jex. Uh, okay. Because I had a when I first wrote my first children's book, I had a buddy. His little girl couldn't say my name, and so she would go, let's read the book by Jets Fox World. <laughs> and, uh, and so once my kids heard that, they never called me dad again. They just called me Jack. Really? And I thought, well, it's an easy name for little kids to say, obviously. So uh, yeah, I'm just Jack. Well, they got, they got me as Buck. <laughs> I just, I'm just, I'm just praying they get their letters right when they pronounce that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one that was scaring me. Mm -hmm. No, that's perfect. I love. It. Well, it's it's like your third life. I always said, and you know, now my my two grandsons and uh, they're old enough to want to go fishing, and little Kate's getting to where she's ready to go. So it's a cool deal. There's no question about it. And, uh, and, and I love my grandfather. He, you know, he was from Rome, Georgia, and got me hunting and fishing. So, uh, well, look, I know you're busy. I appreciate your time. Your friendship has always been one of my favorites and I appreciate you and Greg and you just always been there when I've needed you and, and I appreciate that. Is there anything upcoming well, that we need to talk about that you're doing or websites or what people could come see Jeff Fox? What are they doing? Yeah, I just filmed uh, uh, a Netflix special. It's going to be on in March. I think it's like March 20th, but it's called The Good Old Days. It was uh, some of that stuff you saw me do. Right. Uh, when I came down there, so we just filmed that, so that'll be out in March. Uh, I'm finishing up writing a movie, and hopefully this COVID will settle down and we can get back out on the road to do shows, because I've I, I missed doing that. Right. So, uh, you know, we're doing doing a few here and there, but I'm going to get back and, and do some more. Well, good deal. All right, well, thank you for your time, my friend. You and I will always stay in touch. Folks, that does it for this week's Buckmasters Outdoors podcast with Mr. Jeff Foxworthy. Y'all stay tuned. We've got a lot of great guests coming soon.